Hello, welcome to Warhorn Media's podcast of Out of Our Minds blog posts. This is episode 64. It is titled, All Scripture is God-Breathed, number five. It's by Tim Bailey. I'm also your reader. And the post is dated January 26, 2023. The post begins with a saying from French, which being translated says, translations are like women. If they are good-looking, you can't trust them to be faithful. And if they stick by their mates, it's because they're old frumps. Smile. This is fifth in a series of posts. For several decades now, evangelical Bible scholars translating Scripture have proven themselves women lacking the male capacity to stand the heat of battle and fight. This is true of Zondervan's New International Version 2011, and too often it's also true of Crossway's English Standard Version. Subheading Zondervan's New International Version 2011. The Committee on Bible Translation, CBT, is paid to produce all translations bearing the name New International Version, which translations are then licensed and sold by the News Corps publishing company, Zondervan. CBT's members typically include, and just a note here, there's a footnote and a link here, that this post, much of this post, originally appeared a decade ago, and so some of the names have changed since then. Nevertheless, the members typically include men like Craig Blomberg, Gordon Fee, Dick France, Doug Moo, Bill Mounts, Mark Strauss, and Bruce Watke, all possessing the terminal degree. Being scholars, we may safely conclude it's not out of ignorance of Hebrew or English that their Bible product, the New International Version 2011, myths translates the Hebrew Isha as, quote, weaklings, unquote, in each of the texts below. And thanks to Andrew D. on this. And then a number of quotes from the Old Testament. Quote, In that day the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 16. Second quote, A sword against her horses and chariots and all the foreigners in her ranks. They will become weaklings. A sword against her treasures, they will be plundered, Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 37. The third text, quote, Babylon's warriors have stopped fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength is exhausted. They have become weaklings. Her dwellings are set on fire. The bars of her gates are broken, Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 30. And the fourth text, quote, Look at your troops. They are all weaklings. 
The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Nahum 3, verse 13. When God made Eve from Adam's rib and presented her to Adam as his wife, Adam exclaimed, quote, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And the Hebrew word is isha. Because she was taken out of man. And the Hebrew word is ish. Genesis 2, verse 23. So, in the hands of Doug Moo and his colleagues, why has this verse not been translated, quote, she shall be called weakling, because she was taken from weak, unquote. Even readers who know nothing of Hebrew easily understand that the name Adam gave his wife is pregnant with meaning. Isha indicates derivation from ish. So also in English, woman indicates derivation from man. And it's for this reason some feminists change the spelling of woman to W-O-M-Y-N. What the Holy Spirit does in each of the texts above is to shame fighting men, pointing out their weakness and cowardice by calling them Isha, women. Will our highly educated translators let the Holy Spirit say this to us in English? No. And why not? We all understand. It's not politically correct to shame weak and cowardly men by calling them women. As the CBT men see it, such a usage is beneath the Holy Spirit. It's unworthy of him. So they correct him, lest anyone today disinclined to honor the Holy Spirit, would read his inspired words here and think less of him. It would not be right to put such a stumbling block in readers' paths, so these men delete it. Of course, the real issue is not the Holy Spirit. These men of the Committee on Bible Translation are worried about themselves. Translation is an aspirational vocation. Translators use their work of translation to demonstrate their own sophistication. What sort of sophistication would people think they possessed if they allowed such a statement into their translation associated with their own name? And so it is that thousands of words throughout the Holy Scriptures are changed by men who tremble at offending feminists and being thought rubes. Rupert Murdoch, who is uh, CEO of News Corps, which owns Zondervan, Rupert Murdoch needs to fire these guys and hire himself some real men who are able to stand the heat of battle, producing a genuine Bible that says what the Holy Spirit himself inspired. Do any of our readers know Rupert Murdoch? But beyond the aspirations of CBT men running roughshod over the text of Scripture, almost as distressing is how many of these men officially claim to hold to the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. They sign statements of faith declaring their allegiance to, quote, the plenary verbal inspiration, unquote, of Scripture, and then turn right around and replace the word women with weaklings. 
So that's the NIV 2011, but what of Crossway's English Standard Version? Again, translation is an aspirational vocation that's heavily influenced by what the translator wants his colleagues to think of him. Some years back, I wrote the ESV men, pointing out how bad a job they'd done on 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to command Timothy to have nothing to do with grolidice mythos, literally, quote, old women's fables, unquote. But note how the ESV men gagged him. The NASB translates that text, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, quote, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, unquote. The King James Version translates it, quote, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, unquote. The New Living Translation translates it, quote, do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales, unquote. But the ESV, quote, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, unquote. What is with these guys? I mean, really? Just like the NIV's Committee for Bible Translation, the men paid to produce the ESV also felt keenly how gauche it is to refer to, quote, old women's fables, unquote. What would people think of them if they allowed such an archaic construction into their own text of their own translation of their own Bible? Their peers might think they were hicks, living in double-wides. It's not difficult understanding what they're doing. The temptation is constant among translators, whether of Scripture, Twain, or Gogol. David Bellis, in his book, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything, says this, quote, high-flown, pompous, elegant, or regal forms of language in the source document are generally represented by terms of corresponding social rank in the target document, the target language. Real difficulties arise only when the class register is low, and especially when the language of the source represents the speech forms of uneducated folk. Translators shy away from giving uncouth forms of language in the target text. The reason is obvious. Grammatical mistakes, malapropisms, and other kinds of, quote, substandard, unquote, language must not be seen to be the translator's fault, unquote. Now, keep in mind this post was written and published in 2013, at which time there had been two ESV revisions issued, the first in 2007 and the second in 2011. But they still refused to allow God's Holy Spirit to say, quote, old wives' tales, unquote. Recently, preaching through 1 Corinthians, I've come upon another place where the ESV translators placated feminist sensibilities. While I don't use the ESV myself, a few in our congregation do, and they alerted me to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 16, there is an extended presentation of the doctrine of the creation order. Here the Apostle Paul applies this order of Adam first, then Eve, to length of hair, 
and men's and women's head coverings. This text is an extended presentation of the doctrine of sexuality, of the meaning and purpose of God creating man and woman. The two Greek words, aner and gune, and cognates, are used throughout this text. Normally, these words are sex-specific, referring specifically to a member of the male or female sex. As subsets of the male or female sex, on occasion, the context in which these Greek words aner and gune are used in a way that indicates the proper translation is not man or woman, but husband or wife. In rare cases, aner may also be used to refer to all men, that is, as a male inclusive of both men and women, just as the Hebrew adam is often used in the Old Testament as God's chosen male inclusive for the entire race bearing his image and likeness, both men and women. So then, see how the NASB 95 and then the King James Version and finally the English Standard Version translate this long passage. Now this is difficult because the passage is long, but if you go online, everything's in bold that shows the difference between accurate Bibles and the ESV. I'm going to go ahead and read all through each of the versions, and I'm going to emphasize every occurrence of the word, the Greek word aner, man, and how it's translated as well as the Greek word gene and woman. First, the New American Standard Bible, 1995. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, an heir, and the man, an heir, is the head of a woman, gene, and God is the head of Christ. Every man, an heir, who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman, gene, who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman, Gene, does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man, an heir, ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman, Gene, is the glory of man, an heir. For man, an heir, does not originate from woman, gene, but woman, gene, from man, an heir. For indeed, man, an heir, was not created for the woman's, gene, sake, but woman, gene, for the man's, an heir, sake. Therefore, the woman, gene, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman, gene, independent of man, an heir, nor is man, an heir, independent of woman, gene. For as the woman, gene, originates from the man, an heir, so also the man, an heir, has his birth through the woman, gene. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman, gene, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man, an heir, has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman, Gene, has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her 
for a covering. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 15. Now, I'm going to skip the King James Version. You can see it online, and I'm simply going to read as our second case the English Standard Version, the same text. I'm not going to read the Greek this time. Just listen to the words I emphasize. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, But woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 15. Some readers may find the above translations confusing. They may get lost trying to trace which Greek word in there is translated man, and which the translators switch to husband, which Greek word gene is translated woman, and which the translators switch to wife. They may find themselves asking the question, why? What was the translator's rationale for leaving this gene, woman, while changing this other gene to wife? Let's simplify matters by pulling the curtain back a bit. In their footnotes, the ESV men claim the proper translation of gene and by extension, anair, is determined by the context of head coverings. They assure us head coverings were only for married women. And so anytime the word gene is used in connection with head covering, it must not mean woman, but wife. Is our patience with professional scholars wearing thin? As soon as the reader examines what the translators did with each anair and gene in the text above, it becomes painfully clear the translators' decisions had everything to do with their embarrassment concerning God's order of creation of man and woman, and nothing to do with head coverings. But then each vocation has its temptations, doesn't it? 
Princeton professor and award-winning translator Bellis, again from his book, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Quote, there is a general tendency of all translations to adhere more strongly than any original to a normalized idea of what the target language should be. To put that a different way, translation always takes the register and level of naturally written prose up a notch or two. Some degree of raising is and always has been characteristic of translated texts, simply because translators are instinctively averse to the risk of being taken for less than fully cultivated writers of their target tongue. Unquote. I repeat, he writes, quote, translators are instinctively averse to the risk of being taken for less than fully cultivated writers of their target tongue, unquote, in this case, English. No surprise, then, that the men paid to translate the ESV balked at the Holy Spirit's declaration, quote, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. How humiliating it would be for one's name to be attached to such a troglodyte construction. They couldn't, they simply could not allow readers of the ESV to see their own revered names attached to such a self-evidently patriarchal and sexist declaration from the ancient world. Why, they'd be taken for rubes by their sophisticated contemporaries, reading their work in the target tongue of contemporary English. Thus, quote, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ, unquote, was silenced. And replaced by, quote, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of a wife, and God is the head of Christ, unquote. At what cost? At the cost of the world and God's people being taught and led to understand that man first, then woman, is the universal law of God for all time in all places among all men. It is the warp and woof of womanhood and manhood, unconstrained in its splendor. It is the cornerstone of sexuality, and man will either build his happiness and contentment upon it or be crushed by it. This is true Christian faith. Tragically, this is not part of the Christian faith of the men who got paid to revise the Revised Standard Version into the English Standard Version. They flinch and cower at the thought of confessing this biblical faith. This is the reason they gag the Greek words of 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 15. They tremble to think of being salt and light in our desperately wicked generation. And so they refuse to allow the doctrine of sexuality to be given expression here in this text, pronouncing from their great eminence as modern-day scribes, quote, we tell you it's husband and wife, not man and woman, unquote. But of course, they're wrong. What the Holy Spirit actually inspired the Apostle Paul to write here is, quote, but I want you to understand 
that Christ is the head of every man, not husband, and the man, not husband, is the head of a woman, not wife, and God is the head of Christ, unquote. What is dealt with here is man and woman as man and woman, not husband and wife. His source being Scripture's record of God's creation order there in the perfection of the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. The Apostle Paul here teaches truths that are universally applicable to the two sexes, to every last man and every last woman until the end of time. Thus, John Calvin writes, quote, It is asked whether he speaks of married women exclusively, for there are some that restrict to them what Paul here teaches on the ground that it does not belong to virgins to be under the authority of a husband. It is, however, a mistake, for Paul looks beyond this to God's eternal law, which has made the female sex subject to the authority of men. On this account, all women are born that they may acknowledge themselves inferior in consequence of the superiority of the male sex. And these are his comments on this text, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. Good readers, in this statement by the great reformer John Calvin, you see everything our venerable scribes refuse to say. You here read everything they fear being spoken today by God, by themselves. Poor church, poor world. This is fifth in a series. Thank you for listening. Do us a favor and subscribe to this podcast. Two, tell your friends they can now subscribe to audio recordings of Warhorn Posts. We depend on you as our only marketing. Until our next post, stay warm, devote yourself to loving your neighbor, and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is Tim Bailey saying thank you for giving us a lesson. Goodbye. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Proudly the wicked pursues the poor. By his own plots, Lord, let him be surprised. Rise up, O Lord. Hear how he boasts of his heart's desire.